Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. The UK National Health Service is famously regarded in terms that are tantamount to a religion. No major political party would dare call into question the idea that healthcare should be provided free at the point of use, pay for out of taxation, and overwhelmingly delivered by state controlled organisations. Yet today, there have been further calls for more funding for the NHS, which seems perennially short of cash. The NHS performs poorly in terms of outcomes compared to systems in many other countries that have a different balance in terms of public and private involvement. Moreover, the fact of a publicly funded service is often used as a justification for restricting the rights of smokers, drinkers and the overweight. To get a different perspective on these issues, I'm pleased to be joined by Terry Barnes. Terry is Lifestyle Economics Fellow at the Institute of Economic Affairs and has been an advisor to two Australian health ministers, including former Australian PM Tony Abbott. Morning, Terry. So I I don't know how the Australian health system works. Uh, Is it anything like the National Health Service? It's It's a bit of a hybrid. Actually, it is like the NHS in terms of people pay uh, an equivalent of national insurance uh, for access to publicly funded health care, both at the primary care level and also at the hospital level. So we have free public hospital uh, admissions, for instance. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a really a hybrid mix of uh, public and private. So you can have private health insurance and about half the population do do that. And we have a, a very strong private hospital sector. And... Uh, our, our medical practitioners, our doctors, like to think of themselves as free and independent uh, operators. They're not employed by the NHS style, for instance. We don't have things such as uh, your junior doctor's dispute in the, in the, in the same way. Um, though many work in the public system, uh, private, private doctors uh, uh, are out there for themselves, yet because of the way that the subsidy system, which we call Medicare, works, um, effectively, Medicare payments are their bread and butter. So uh, they're de facto employees at the state, even though they fiercely claim that they're not. Right. Okay. And how does that, how does that um, work out in terms of people's experience of healthcare? Because pe- while people have rose-tinted views about the our NHS, when, it, 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 when you talk about it in principle, often when you dig down to their personal experiences of it, then the, it becomes a bit more problematic. Well, in terms of outcomes, I think uh, the Australian healthcare system is one of the best in the world um, in terms of uh, those who are uh, financially or socially disadvantaged. Um, the Medicare system uh, enables them to receive uh, acute and primary healthcare services free at point of access. Um, we call it bulk billing uh, when it comes to doctors. And uh, and those who, who don't... Uh, receive bulk billed services don't really pay much in way of a co-payment or moiety. Um, and when it comes to going to hospital, if you're privately insured, um, the costs of that are basically picked up by your insurance uh, with, with an excess, of course. But, uh, but really, um, it is a service that is available to everybody uh, at high quality, world-class quality and probably world-beating quality in many ways. As good as, if, and I'd like to think, if not better than the NHS. Um, and, and so the, the the thing that's always held up as a straw man is America. If you don't want the NHS, then you've got to have America, which is obviously a very expensive health system, brilliant at the top end, very poor quality coverage at the, the bottom end. You're saying that there is there are alternatives. Well, nobody wants a, a US style healthcare system. Rob, outside the US and probably mainly inside the US, as uh, Barack Obama would tell you with Obamacare. But um, I think it's uh, important to have 
a sufficient mix of public and private funding. Uh, I think those with the capacity to pay for some of their health care should contribute in some way. And uh, an Australian policy that is done by encouraging people to take out private health insurance, so particularly people on middle and upper incomes. And there is actually a with our Medicare levy, our national insurance equivalent, there is a surcharge if you don't have private health insurance above a certain income level. So that's that's important. But I think when you think that the US has a, a GDP share for health of 16%, we ours is uh, just under 10. Um, it's a little more than the UK's, but uh, it's certainly middling in OECD terms. So our mixed public-private system on that sense has got a reasonable balance, I think. But even with that acceptance of this this balance in Australia, you caused something of a storm by suggesting people pay for GPs. Can you explain a bit about that? Well, in 2013, I wrote a paper for an Australian think tank which uh, advocated a mandatory $5, so roughly £2 uh, co-payment for going to the GP uh, with uh, with uh, some limitations on it so that uh, it would be would have been 12 visits a year um, or seventy two Australian dollars uh, six dollars a pop that uh, most people would be able to afford if, if you think that the average number of visits to a GP in a year in Australia is roughly about five uh, we're talking of a, a relatively small amount of money over over a year as I said those who are able to are bulk billed when they go to the doctor so, so free of, free of charge it doesn't it's not out of pocket but asking people who have previously taken for granted a free visit to pay even five dollars caused a political storm because the government uh, took took my idea. Well, actually, it wasn't a, just my idea. It was a previous Labor government twenty years ago that ex- tried to do it itself and failed. Um, and I revived it. And uh, but they did a version of it in the uh, uh, the Abbott government's uh, first budget in twenty fourteen, which created an absolute national funeral and uh, contributed, I think, materially, unfortunately, to the downfall of Tony Abbott as Prime Minister a year or so later. Because, like here in the, in the UK, uh, there is it's clear now that there is a Medicare settlement, that uh, Medicare is a national icon, to even suggest tweaking it is like uh, killing Bambi, and yeah. uh, I am a Bambi killer. Yeah. So, so uh, unfortunately, uh, the, pol- the politics of it worked in such a way that it it became toxic for the government, um, and eventually, because of fierce opposition from the public, but even more so from the vested interest in the healthcare community, especially the Australian Medical Association, you know, the doctors, uh, it, it was killed and killed hard. And the problem for Australia is that because of the way that debate played out, sensible healthcare reform uh, across the board is going to be very difficult for years to come, and I, I really feel very sad about that. Yeah, I mean, so the effect of that, the idea is just making people stop and think about whether they really need to go and see a GP. That was the plan. And then we looked at uh, some studies that, and, and very extensive uh, longitudinal studies that the RAND Corporation did in the US in the 70s and 80s, and uh, which indicated that a minor co-payment did not deter people from going to the doctor when they absolutely needed to that actually help people ask the question, did they need to, when the decision was marginal? Like if you have a, a cold, for instance, and uh, uh, is it easier just to sort of see it out or uh, go to the doc and get uh, get a prescription for something you probably didn't need anyway? 
those sort of decisions actually cost the taxpayer a lot of money in a, in a, in a subsidised system like the NHS or Medicare. Yeah, I mean, I've had a similar experience recently because I've been spending more time in Scotland and I was shocked to find that I knew about it, but it was to be reminded that prescription charges there were abolished so you can get free drugs. But that then you never have the question, well, actually, is this drug cheaper if I just buy it or do I really need the drug or anything like that? It's just like, well, it's free. I might as well. I paid for it through my taxes, haven't I? So, And there's a lot of the same attitude in Australia, and I, I suspect in other countries like Canada where there are similar systems. So, because uh, that was the thing that came back to me again and again while this co-payment controversy was going. I pay my Medicare levy. I'm entitled to get what I get for free because I've already paid paid my entry fee. But the thing about the Medicare levy in Australia is that uh, in terms of the federal government's, you know, not state governments, but the federal government's health budget, uh, it pay, it actually covers less than 20% of the overall outlay. And it's, it's not a dollar-for-dollar dollar thing at all. So, But people don't understand that. They don't know where their money is going. And, and health generally is such a bottomless pit. Uh, it could go anywhere and actually do nothing. So when I see reports as, uh, over here that uh, the government is saying we're going to improve the NHS by spending yet more billions on it, that's not necessarily the answer. It's it's the quality of the spend, not the quantity. But people don't want to know that. The media doesn't want to know that and voters don't want to know that. So, so while I, I'm not so familiar with the... Uh the ins and outs of the healthcare system in Australia. One thing I do hear a lot about is some very noisy uh, nanny state public health people in Australia. So, uh, yeah, is Australia at the forefront of sort of these nanny state policies in terms of restricting people's rights and uh, of smokers and drinkers and that kind of thing? Well, people, I think, in uh, the UK and Europe have uh, this impression of Australia as a big outback frontier society with lots of big blokes who are very brave and healthy and run around doing crazy things. But the reality is that we're even more nannied than you are. We, In my hometown of Melbourne, for instance, uh, we have uh, a local equivalent of Boris bikes. But you cannot ride a Boris bike in Melbourne if you don't buy a helmet from the helmet kiosk at the same time. In fact, you can't go anywhere on a bicycle in Melbourne or in Australia now without wearing a helmet. And I come to London and I see people riding Boris and other bikes without a helmet, with their earphones in, <laughs> disregarding the road rules. I mean, uh, uh, you know, you're actually much freer in many ways than we are. But yes, I think we have a, a very strong nanny state culture, not just in terms of regulation, but in terms of the way that the public health lobby actually advocates uh, all these restrictions in Australia. I think we're far more behind the UK, especially. Um, usually, uh, we like to think that the world follows us, but in this case, it's, it's actually we're following you in the UK. And uh, there's no particularly particularly better example in my mind than than vaping. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because uh, I went to a, a conference in Warsaw last June, which is a, I think it's called the the Global, Global Forum on Tobacco and Nicotine. I think uh, it was very interesting listening to people from New Zealand and Australia. And there was a very very passionate speech at the end of the conference given by. Attila Danko, I think his name Attila is. Danko. Attila Danko. Who's, I was uh, there too. I'm sorry I didn't meet you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, so yeah, basically saying, because the problem there is you're allowed to vape, you're allowed to buy the, the liquid to go with vaping, but it's not allowed to contain nicotine, which seems to me absolutely insane. So w- w- why is that Why is that continue to happen? Well, it's, it's even more absurd than that because under Australians, Australia's poisons schedule, Nicotine is listed as a dangerous poison. That's fair enough. 
there is only one exemption to access to it, other than for limited personal importation used with medical practitioner direction. And that is, quote unquote, for use in tobacco prepared and packed for smoking. So in other words, you can get your deadly copper nail cigarettes and smoke them happily into an early grave with official government sanction. But uh, when a new technology comes along, new disruptive technology, Public Health England and the Royal College of Physicians argue on the basis of evidence is up to, or if not more than, 95% safer than combustible cigarettes. That is actually illegal in Australia. It's it's currently illegal in New Zealand, but they are moving to get rid of that. Um, It's also currently illegal in Canada, and they're moving to get rid of that. But in Australia, to even suggest it is actually bringing down the public health lobby on your on your head with a ton of bricks and a lot of very nasty uh, ad hominem invective and an insult. I mean, basically, those who stick to the status quo and believe that their life's work of tobacco control is going to be unwound see this as a threat. They don't see it as an opportunity, as they are in the UK to uh, Britain's great credit. In Australia, it's you, you, it's like a, a McCarthyist regime when it comes to public health. You either believe in what they say 100% or you are the enemy of the people. And I guess on, in terms of advocating public policy that sees harm reduction as giving people access to harm reducing ways of dealing with a, a nicotine craving, uh, as, as a no brainer, uh, I, I'm seen as an enemy of the people. There's two characters in particular I've come across in different, different ways. One you'll be very, very familiar with is Simon Chapman. And another is a, a, an obesity activist called Boyd Swinburne. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, uh, but what, what strikes me about a, a lot of, uh, and it's similar in the UK, is that the, the most vociferous of these people often have no medical, medical qualifications. They're like sociologists or something. And it's kind of become a vehicle for a kind of cod socialism slash Marxism, uh, whereby they think that to liberate the people, the state has to do it on their behalf. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of childish. Look, I think there's a very Aristotelian feel to the way that the public health lobby works. Uh, I mean, Aristotle, I think it was in his politics to talk about, you know, philosopher kings and we're up there telling you down here how to behave. And there's very much that attitude in public health in Australia and I think public health generally. Um, it's interesting, actually, Simon Chapman. I mean, he's a, I respect some, he did some great work in Australia, for instance, in the 90s on gun control. Uh, very, very important work. Um, but on, on the vaping issue, uh, while he says he has an open mind, he's actually very much uh, associated with moves to uh, introduce particularly state legislation to either suppress it or to heavily restrict it on the basis that, oh, it's too early to know what the real picture with vaping is. But my, my sense is, as a policymaker, and my background is in making policy in politics, uh, if basically you're prepared to say, we will give this new technology the benefit of the doubt on the basis that evidence so far is actually on the positive side and be prepared to revise that over time if that's what's seen to be required. It actually seems to me that that is genuine harm reduction. You're actually endorsing something that is going to reduce harm to people. And when I talk about harm in the vaping context, I mean, if they don't have access to vaping uh, and it is actually working with them as a a person as a smoking cessation method or a smoking reduction method. Their alternative is to stay on the legally sanctioned uh, combustible cigarettes. Uh, with, And it's not the nicotine that kills people from those cigarettes. It's actually the, the combination of uh, metals and tars and gases and other things that are ingested through the smoke. I mean, that's 
stopping the smoke is the important thing here, not stopping the nicotine, but it's conflated in Australia. And I think it's a bit conflated here in the UK as well, but not so much. Um, but it's not just in the in that area. I mean, in, you mentioned obesity. I mean, uh, we're not uh, hopefully going to follow you in terms of sugar taxes on, on soft drinks, for instance, um, but it's being talked about. And certainly the public health lobby has talked about the sh- you know, sugar taxation as the, the next big public health nirvana. Um, in terms of alcohol, um, we're going through a process at the moment where our National Health and Medical Research Council is starting to revise drinking guidelines, just as uh, you had a bit of a controversy over here earlier in the year about that. I think we're going to be going through that in the next little while. But we have a situation, though, where the, uh, the expert group that's been convened to oversee this process is full of goody-goody you know, scientists um, and consumers that... Uh, Industry is treated as, as a pariah, and when you think about uh, the alcohol industry or, or other industries that flow off it, like hospitality, uh, they have an interest, a very strong interest in um, responsible consumption of alcohol, just as much as anybody else. But uh, and and because they are in the industry, they actually know what they're talking about. So again, it's uh, if you're of the the, the charm circle, you're okay. If you're not, then you're an enemy of the state. So it's an interesting sort of. Uh, a very much black and white, um, no in between sort of battle between between interests, and I think that goes right across the public health sector. Since you worked in government, why why does the public health lobby have so much influence? I mean, it, it, I mean, it is very influential here. It sounds very influential there. Um, how how has it got to that point? The thing about the public health lobby and public health generally is the, the goals are noble. We got, I think we, we all share them. We all want to reduce people's uh, risk of harm. We all want to improve people's states of health. Uh, we all want to ensure that taxpayers' money is spent as efficiently as possible. Um, but what happens with public health, I think, is that because the experts capture the, capture the conversation, um, it becomes a really an, an us versus them thing because they, they claim to know what's best and expect others to follow it. But in terms of the, the political conversation, uh, those talking heads like Simon Chapman, for instance, uh, pop up in the media all the time. Uh, if you want to comment on uh, on um, smoking and tobacco control or vaping, you go to Simon Chapman. Uh, that's and until recently, there's been no real counterpoint point of you know, point of comment in Australia to put another point of view and. Uh, and when you're a politician, say you're a minister, minister of health, uh, wanting to look at these areas, and say you wanted to be more liberal on on vaping and and um, nicotine containing e-liquids, for instance, you have to be prepared to take pl- the political risk of having the guns of the public health lobby fired straight at you, um, and you have to be prepared to run that gauntlet while that that's happening. And uh, and uh, in Australia, I think at the federal and state level. Uh, Politicians on both sides, uh, you know, conservative and Labor, really see that as one thing that they don't really need to do, let alone want to do. Okay, well, that's been a fa- fascinating insight into the similarities and differences between the the, the health scene in uh, the UK and Australia. Terry Barnes, thank you very much indeed. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, please go to instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast, where you can find our archive and subscribe to our podcast feed. Thank you very much for listening.